Hi, I'm Tafria Jemian. Welcome to Yeah, the show where we talk about what young adult lit can teach us at any age. Today we have the second episode of our special series in collaboration with Montreal Yathest. Over the next few weeks, we'll be interviewing several of Montreal Yathest's featured authors and event organizers. During this period, we'll be alternating our regular book review content with the Yathest promotional content, giving you new content every single week. This week, we're interviewing Ben Philippe, the author of The Field Guide to the North American Teenager. We talk about just about everything under the sun. We talk about Ben's book. We talk about the Hogwarts houses. We talk about the specific experience of being a teenager and so much more. I had a blast talking with Ben. I know you'll get excited about this episode too. Ben Philippe is an author and a teacher at Barnard College in Manhattan, New York. His debut novel, The Field Guide to the North American Teenager, came out in January 2019. He holds a bachelor's from Columbia University and an MFA in fiction and screenwriting from the Mishner Center for Writers at the University of Texas, Austin. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hi again. So um, to start off, could you tell us, tell me a little bit about when and how you started writing and where your first book came from? Uh, sure. Um, I'm not one of those people that, uh, one of those authors that always like starts by saying they've been writing since they could remember. Um, I always have like a slight impulse to roll my eyes <laughs> when people say that. Not because it's, I don't, I think they're lying, but just because like that is so far from my experience. Uh, I started to write pretty late. I think the first time I really fully attempted it was in college. Um, with my first writing class, and I remember I really enjoyed it, um, and then it just sort of became the focus. I used to be an econ major, okay. so over the course of like four years, uh, my life transitioned from econ to film to English to just full creative writing, you're going to be a barista, and that's when I was writing <laughs> short stories, and then I got my MFA, so yeah, it was, I think I started to write seriously around the age of uh, 18, 19. Okay. And how about the Field Guide to the North American Teenager? Where did that come from for you? Uh, I was always really sort of interested and fascinated by the American high school, mm -hmm. or like just any of those big high schools, because you have to include Degrassi in that. Um, <laughs> I wasn't writing, but I was watching a lot of TV when I was younger. Mm -hmm. So I would like watch the CW, and before it was the CW, it was the WB. I was watch, watch all those shows, um, Buffy, where high school was actually hell. Dawson's Creek, when they were all literally 30-year-old adults, um, <laughs> Gossip Girl, uh, DOC, all those shows. And to me, American high schools were this like amazing place where there were tables and factions and drama that I didn't have at my school. Mm -hmm. At my school, everybody was, I mean, they were most, like, I thought a lot of people sucked. <laughs> um, but we didn't really have that high level of prom every year and drama and all that stuff. So I, that was always a backdrop that was interesting to me. And um, I wrote short stories during my MFA program. So they were very sort of based for adult, uh, like aimed at an adult audience. And then eventually um, that didn't really work. Like I wrote a bunch of short stories that were very, very self-important, very sort of typical MFA fair. <laughs> and <laughs> um, people were interested in reading my manuscript. I got some leads to like find an agent and all that stuff, but um, they were like summarily rejected. <laughs> um, I think like I sent it uh, to like seven people on a Friday and by Monday afternoon, like five of them had rejected it. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but some people were into my voice. Some agents were like, Hey, this is really cool, but um, it's, 
it's really hard to sell collections of short stories, so attach your novel. <laughs> and they said it in a way that was like, oh, we just assume you have a novel because you're not certainly not arrogant enough to think like you're going to sell a collection of short stories and live as a wealthy author <laughs> in the woods. <laughs> um, I was like, I don't have one of those. So I took two years after college, like freelancing, working in marketing, uh, living in New York with four roommates on the ground floor where you could hear the rats just make beautiful love <laughs> inside the walls. Um, I took this time to write something I really wanted to write. Mm -hmm. And because I was working a full-time job, like writing had to be enjoyable for me. Right. And the only thing that was like fully enjoyable was writing teenagers, writing a story that was in that setting that I always loved. And yeah, that was uh, the origins of Field Guide. And it caught interest, thankfully. Yeah. That's really cool. That's that, I like that that story of sort of the publisher driving the novel being born. That's I did uh, a, a BA in lit, and I'm so familiar with the like struggle <laughs> of finding a voice that doesn't sound just like an MFA short story. I loved my MFA. It was really it was funded. I met so many like amazing authors and classmates. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that sometimes they leave you slightly unprepared for the realities of publishing. Okay. It might just be writers, too, because like whenever you look at the back of a book, um, it always just says, like, this person was published in Pushcart and lives in New York. And that's all you know of their <laughs> lives. So if you're trying to, like, reverse engineer it. You're like, okay, how did they find their agent? How yeah. did they find a publisher? Um, what's their day job? Because a lot of, I would say, most writers have a day job Absolutely, on the side. Like, yeah, yeah. It's just people don't like to mention that. <laughs> they like to sort of, like, leave it looking, like, effortless. Um so yeah, the MFA setting, I, I'm really grateful for it, but it would have been nice if people had said like, hey, you should know that like all those collections of short stories you're all writing, um, maybe try your hand at a novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so true. That's one of the things I love about doing the author interviews is getting that sense of kind of how it happens, where you come from, and like that it's not just sending off your first manuscript to a publisher and then suddenly you're in a penthouse department like <laughs> no um, getting getting it, made into a movie or whatever oh yeah. if only yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> although the the people who that's been happening to in the last year roundly deserve it i think a lot of the authors that we've followed who are getting that it's no i i completely agree and it's like publishing is both like super by the way you can cut all of this out if i'm just like on a tangent on a tangent right now go for it okay publishing is like on the outside you always like when you're public submitting to agents when you're trying to get published it feels so competitive that like oh if this person got an amazing book advance and that's like that's less money for me and i should have gotten that and it's right. really easy it's really hard to actually keep your eye on your own copy um but once you're in it like all the writers i've met have been super supportive they've all been really really nice there's always Sorry, that's a fire that happens, truck. Yeah. <laughs> New York City, and I live like two blocks away from a fire station. Okay. Um, but yeah, everyone's really, really supportive inside of it. So I think if I could go back in time and give myself like one piece of advice when I was writing, it would just be like, keep your eye on your own copy. Um, be happy for people when they get published. It doesn't mean that like uh, your time isn't hopefully going to come. Yeah, absolutely. So did... The field guide to the North American teen, did uh, Norris Kaplan, did they come from, like, largely from Degrassi and that, like, fascination with high school? Or, like, can you tell me a little bit about how, why you settled on a YA novel, ultimately? Uh, sure. I think the YA sort of came after the book was written mm -hmm. because 
uh, turns out, I didn't even know what the difference between YA and like A was. Right. Um, and they sort of told me after when they like chose the book. And it's definitely like if you have an undergrad, uh, I said undergrad, Jesus. Um, <laughs> if you have an underage protagonist that's under the age of like 18, mm-hmm. and if there's like an arc that feels like a coming of age, it's essentially a YA novel. Um, there are like books, for, for example, there's a book called Heroin, Heroin mm-hmm. out right now by Mindy McGinnis, mm-hmm. which is about like hardcore n- narcotics and drug addiction. And that's still considered YA. I think the okay. Basketball Diaries, for instance, would be YA today. So I think it just like, it became YA because I was writing about a teen in a high school and yeah. that felt right. But uh, on a character level, I kind of think I was like, I don't know, not emotionally stunted, but a high school felt like the right place <laughs> to deal with um, my emotions and all of that. Because mm-hmm. uh, teenagers like don't have to be apologetic about feeling their feelings. Mm-hmm. Sort of like it's the age where you, if you listen to a song, the most generic love song that just uses the word baby a bunch, you're like, oh my God, no, this is about my life. This yeah. is my life. No one else can understand this song except me. And I think that's really kind of joyful and awesome. Yeah. Um, and I just, like, I really enjoyed writing that story. Mm-hmm. One of the really fun things in the story is that you are very, like, visibly and deliberately dealing with tropes and stereotypes about high school and about high schoolers. And uh, I know, like, I, I just finished it and... I don't know the last time I have laughed as hard as I laughed in this book. Like I loved oh, it. <laughs> I loved thank you it. So much. I kept being like like what? <laughs> over and over again. It's so it's so great. But I remember like at the beginning of the book being like, wow, I really hope he's setting these tropes up to like humanize them to, later. Um to do something against them and not just like uh boil people down as bitchy cheerleaders. Right, right. But like <laughs> what I I love about it, and I also love knowing that you weren't, like, kind of setting out to write a YA novel necessarily, is that it actually really engages with the YA genre in a fun way that I find really interesting. Yeah, because you have, like, it's very common in YA books to have the the protagonist be, like, somebody who kind of sees through everybody's bullshit and, like, knows everybody's type and is not that. And what I really liked about this book is that you're setting that up and then being like, hey that's kind of a dickish way to think about people. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed it. And I felt like as something in the YA catalog, it really adds something to that conversation. Thank you so, so much. That's that's like so nice to hear. I think one of my pet peeves with YA books, some YA books, like right now they're kind of killing it, but some of the older ones, mm-hmm. um, one thing that always made me roll my eyes was um, like the protagonist is actively unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> to everyone they meet and for some reason people still like flock to them people still like oh you're they're still they still get a bunch of friends they still get like an amazing cast of characters around them by being actively rude and being sort of actively off-putting so i wanted norris kaplan the protagonist of field guide to sort of start out that way Mm -hmm. but eventually he has to learn the lesson that like you know if you push people away they'll just go away like you're not (laughs) <laughs> like it's very actually easy to just burn every bridge in your life yeah. if you like commit to that. Yeah. And that's like his arc as a character to just come to a to a state where he ha- he has to be a decent person and he gets called out on his crap. Yeah. Yeah, I really I especially really love that 
We were talking about this before we started recording. I'm also somebody who has lived both in Canada and in the States. And I really liked it as a Canadian coming to Texas um, <laughs> also, especially because he has all that like, like one of the, the weird things about living in both Canada and the States is you see how the two countries really just like talk smack about each other constantly when like, you know, most of that's just made up. But I really like this attitude of kind of the Canadian kid coming to the States and being like, I know all about the American high school from TV and then like discovering, oh, wait, these are real people with real like relationships and consequences. Yeah. And it also almost makes no sense for Norris to be like this judgmental because he's a black French Canadian and Canadians have the reputation of being like overly nice and overly polite. Mm -hmm. And he just tumbles into this high school as the rudest person who ever lived. Mm -hmm. And even his version of Texas, like the book is set in Austin, Texas, which by all accounts is considered one of the cool cities of America. Like it's considered like the the, the city in Texas that's unlike anything else yeah. in the States. So it's a lot of like young artists. It's a lot of like people just like being liberal and, and inclusive. And he treats it like he just moved to a farm town in the middle of the desert. He, like their film festival, their music festival, South by Southwest. It's a really cool town. Yeah. Um, and to Norris, it's just like, oh, this, this is just like cowboy country. Mm -hmm. So from like the concept, I wanted it to, I wanted the labeling of people to kind of feel like it doesn't make sense yeah. to the reader. But then eventually Norris catches up. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that that absolutely was effective um i really like there's this one moment i love when he's he's talking to liam and he's complaining about patrick who it's it's patrick who pushes him down the stairs right yes yeah and he's complaining about him and he's like oh i don't even know his name i just call him armpit hair and and he's like well maybe that's why he wanted to push you down the stairs and it's wow. just like well yeah <laughs> yeah that that sort of tension comes from um my own experience um I was always like, I was one of those people who self-identified as a loner. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm always going to be in the back of the room at parties. I'm just going to keep to myself. I'm a loner. I don't fit in. And then I, when I started to sort of like pull out of my own butt and, <laughs> you know, um, just interact with people, they were like, dude, you're at a party. You're leaning against a wall looking at everyone with a scowl. Nobody wants to come over and talk to that person. Yeah. Like. That you're setting yourself up to be a loner. It takes more effort to preserve that like illusion about yourself than it, it does to actually like, just engage with people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I guess you could say that this book was partly uh, therapy for me. <laughs> um, that's one of the things, honestly, that I, I love about reading and reviewing and talking about young adult lit is that it can be so therapeutic as an adult to it, to live in that teenage mindset for a little bit. Um, it really can, because um, when you're, yeah, yeah, there's something liberating, lib uh, there's something liberating and freeing about it, especially since um, in this case I wrote a lot of like thinly veiled version of people I knew, <laughs> which they, the publisher let me get away with, so yay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was fun to go back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's then really fun when when kind of I feel like a turning point for Norris is when Artie. Artie is setting her boundaries and holding him at arm's length. And he's kind of like, this feels like crap. And all his other friends are like, yes, yes, it does. <laughs> like, fancy that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Artie, like the fictional character of Artie is based on my real life friend, Artie. Um, okay. 
Yeah, I kept the name because I thought it was such a perfect name for this character, mm-hmm. and I I wanted her to be sort of to be Indian and ethnic in a way that wasn't just black or right. white, because it always makes like the American identity isn't just white people and black people. Mm-hmm. Americans come from all over the world, um, and he puts so much on her. Like everything you read about Artie for like a good first third of the book is just Norris projecting. Yeah, why this girl is the perfect person for him just yeah. because she's different from everyone else it's sort of like oh she has a camera oh she's artistic oh she's sort of like sarcastic and acerbic like i am and already has her own stuff going on <laughs> already has her own life and yeah. like when they get to a point where he experiences some of that that's when it all the, the illusion falls apart mm-hmm. hopefully that's so great i do want to ask you a little bit just about like So Norris, I would say, is definitely a sympathetic protagonist. You're like rooting for him from the get go. But he's also kind of very tangibly a bit of a jerk. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about just the experience of writing that character Um, (laughs) and kind of how you how you maintain the discipline, I guess, or if there's a temptation to make your character just like great. Yeah, I'd just love to hear a little about that process. Sure. Um, first of all, you're very kind. Thank you for calling it discipline. Um, <laughs> it was actually really, really fun because um, I, I like to say that I make a big show of saying that Norris isn't me, that we're actually very different people, that we wouldn't get along in real life. But mm-hmm. everyone who knows me, who has read the book, just says that, like, no, this is you. This is 300 pages in your head. I couldn't. <laughs> like read it in anything but your voice. Um, and I think there was something really fun about being able to write someone who always talks back, but right. always has a line that's a little too clever. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's almost like out of a TV sitcom. Um, and that's Norris. He just always has like the perfect retort mm-hmm. for the world around him. And I, I did have some, it's weird. I had some hesitancy about making him too unlikable at right. points um, because I was like, well, if I want to sell this book, he's already black, so I have to make him unlikable too. My God, do I ever want to sell this thing? Right. Um, but then I realized like, I'm just writing a regular teenager. Like Teenagers are truly awful people. Like It's a temporary state, but it is a, it's a stage in life where you start to see yourself in the first person yeah. for the first time in your life. Like You become aware of your own interiority. Mm-hmm. So that means you are a little selfish. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are a little sort of like provocative because you know that like you can't talk back to adults and they're not allowed to ground you anymore. Right. Um, so to me, to, for, to, in order to write a teenager that I felt connected with, that felt remotely realistic, I, I had to tap into that, that vein for the character. And a lot, like, <laughs> it's weird because uh, the book's been out for two months now and I get like, all sorts of feedback mm-hmm. on Norris. And some of it is like, no, he was really, really like relatable and sort of like I have teen I hear from parents like, I have teenagers, they're exactly like this. <laughs> I also hear from from people who are like, listen, I finished this book because I like you um, and I wanted to see where the story ends. He is such a little bleep head. <laughs> I disliked him. Every other character is better than him. He shouldn't end up with Maddie or Artie, he should be alone because he's such a snarky monster. <laughs> um, 
I was like, yeah, that's kind of the... So, like, uh, the temperatures about Norris have been all over. Mm-hmm. Um, people love Maddie. Like, universally, people love the character of Maddie. Yeah. Um, but Norris, because he's so acerbic and I think hopefully a little more realistic and yeah. that he's not always the good guy, like, really the entire conceit of the book is that this kid wrote a slam book on yeah. his entire high school. Yeah. Um, and there's no... Uh, it's... Uh, Early, oh, sorry, I'm not being coherent at all, but early drafts of this book, like early concepts for it, mm-hmm. um, the reason why there's not a chapter on bullies, like the, there's one on Manic Pixie Dream Girls, cheerleaders, jocks, loners, mm-hmm. um, but the reason why there wasn't one on bullies is that like by the end you, I wanted people to realize that, oh no, you've been following the bully all along. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up moving away from that because Norris doesn't mean it. Yeah. I think there's some intentional about being a bully and Norris is just like by being himself by putting himself first he just ends up hurting people and I think that's realistic of people yeah absolutely I mean I think I think the fact that like I certainly felt really ambivalent to him throughout reading the book and I mean (laughs) I'm a parent so I tend to be very sympathetic towards kids a lot of the time especially teenagers because I think they get a lot of flack that they don't deserve um Mm -hmm. But, like, I was definitely going back and forth between, like, oh, no, he's a really nice kid. Oh, no, he's really not a nice kid. And I think that makes it really sympathetic. I'm going to be completely narcissist, uh, complete narcissist and ask, like, what were, what, were, what were some of the moments or, like, one moment that, like, you were really, like, not against him, but sort of, like, you're like, ugh, this jerk. Um, definitely, I think his response to Maddie reading his burn book at first was like very defensive and very much just like, oh, I didn't even do anything and not. Mm-hmm. And like he, he went through that process and he got there, but not acknowledging, wow, this was be really hurtful to read, but just kind of right away like, well, Artie shouldn't have told you and I wrote it a long time ago. And that was a point where I was just like, okay, come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, a lot of the time in, in dealing with, it's Liam, yeah? His, like his friend. Yes. Yeah. A lot of the time dealing with him, I would be like, come on. <laughs> like, you need yeah. to see somebody else's experience here for two seconds. Those were like, the Liam scenes are probably my favorite to write. I love Liam. Um, my God. Yeah. I love the character too. I think I I don't I don't think Norris is my favorite. People have asked me, so Norris is probably your favorite because he's kind of loosely based on you and sounds like you. I was like, no, my favorite is hands down Liam. Um because like the scenes where they get into like not confrontations but like serious conversations, mm-hmm. um Norris is so ill equipped for them. Yeah. And I, I wanted to sort of like by that point the reader has spent enough time with Norris that they're like how the hell is he going to be able to get through this very serious, very thoughtful conversation without making it a million times worse? Um, And I've been in those positions in real life too, sort of like you have a friend who trusts you and confines in you and all your, your, like your defense mechanism is to think of like snarky things to say. Uh You're not really able to be a good friend and listen. Uh And it's not that you lack empathy. It's just that like, you've sort of conditioned yourself not to be vulnerable yeah. by <laughs> demonstrating it, especially when you're a teenager. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so writing those scenes where Norris is in that position of like, oh, this person is trusting me with something really heavy yeah. um, was really fun. <laughs> I re- yeah, I really enjoyed it. I'm definitely like a, a gradually reformed Norris. And so reading those scenes is good for me too, to just be like, hey, 
sometimes things are serious and that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I I feel like I need a throw pillow or a t-shirt with that. Sometimes (laughs) things are serious and that's okay. (laughs) I've had people like in my, oh God, I've had people in my own life be like, hey, why did you just make a joke? And that's one of the worst moments. It's like, I don't know. That's kind of my thing. I don't know how else to respond to this. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And so having this foil of a kid who has genuinely like been through a lot and is very thoughtful and really sees the whole person um it's just such a good dynamic thank you yeah i like i like liam and i like that liam has so many bizarre hobbies that he does just just it's like what is he doing oh he just wanted to learn this skill so he's doing that this weekend um yeah liam is kind of like like i'm 30 now mm -hmm. and the older i get the the less i care about sort of like life how how I'm supposed to live it and just like do stuff that I enjoy Amen. And I, think, I, I mean the older you get like it's the best thing about getting older yeah. it's like you don't even have to feel bad about being at home on a Saturday doing dishes cooking something and then watching TV yeah. like I love it whereas if you were in high school or when you were in your 20s you'd be like I should go out if only just to take a selfie with my friends and <laughs> post it online show to the world that I'm like yeah. that I have a life um, but Liam, by virtue of everything he's been through, he's just like, I'm just going to follow my interest. I'm going to, I want to play hockey because I've always been interested in hockey. I want to garden, but I've always wanted to garden. Yeah. And he's just following his bliss in a yeah. way that, uh, I want to be able to do one day. Yeah. Oh, when he's like, oh, I was just tending my night garden. Like, I think I, I think I did a spit take. I was just like, wait, what? Like, which is actually a thing. Yeah. I believe it. Which is actually a thing that like especially in high school, like so many people have so many cool interests mm-hmm. and they, they don't pursue them because they, they're worried, like, how is it going to look? Yeah. Uh, like, oh, that's not cool. That's not like the thing that's going to like make me the most friends. Um, uh, when I was in high school, when I was a young one, mm-hmm. God, um, <laughs> my big thing was were, were mangas and anime. Right. Like I was big into that world. And there were only like three of us uh, in my entire school who were kind of like, openly into that right and we would talk about them almost like in hushed tones like oh did you read that one what did you read that one it was this thing that like if you were into this stuff it made you unappealing to the people you kind of wanted to date mm-hmm. and to the people that would be cool to it would be cool to hang out with yeah um now i just drive through like montreal and there are so there's the freaking fantasia yeah <laughs> uh, every year kids are like doing cosplay proudly they're finding their own tribes yeah. like it is so cool and so communal if you like the avengers and comic books you're just one of the millions of people around the world that are going to go see avengers endgame in a few weeks like it's the status quo and i'm just like oh you have no idea how hard we had it yeah. oh how dare you man i remember this this just reminded me of this conversation i had with my mom actually when i was in high school mm-hmm. and she was saying So my mom is a boomer, so she was a teenager in the 60s, I guess. And she was saying, it's so cool that teens these days, you have so many different ways that you can dress and you'll be fashionable. Like you can you can dress according to the style you like and still find a niche of it that's fashionable. And when I was a kid, you only had like one way of dressing. And if you dressed like anything else, you got like you were like an outcast, basically. And then it's fun to see that kind of happening with this next generation where, like, there's even more acceptance, I feel like. Now, there might be some teens, you know, hitting me up and being like, that is so not true. It's just shifted categories. But it is really neat to see that, like, that change. Yeah, we're giving, like, I think 
the internet has helped. Yeah, I feel absolutely. very old with the sentence I just said, like, <laughs> the internet has helped teenagers. God. Um, I'm a big fan of, like, of the internet, yeah. The internet, that thing, the Firefox, I enjoy the Firefox very much. <laughs> um, but for me, it's like, it's now it's easy to find your community wherever yeah. you are. Mm-hmm. So even if you're in a small town, let's say, hmm, Sherbrooke, uh, <laughs> Quebec, Canada, um, you can go online and find people who are into anime, who are writing fan fiction. Yeah. Like in the same world you are, you can play online video games with them. Um, so I think it's made the world smaller and more exhausting in some ways because, like, we or at least I never had to deal with like a fake Instagram account or like getting ghosted or getting blackmailed mm-hmm. with like social media photos. But I think it's it's made the world more accessible too. So yeah. teens are more confident to be themselves early on. Yeah. It's like power to them. Yeah, whenever anybody's like, oh, social media kills friendships. I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, have you ever used social media? I don't remember where that started, but that was fun. I, I don't either. That's <laughs> I'm being real quiet right now because I'm like, I've been like derailing this with nonsense for a while. So I'm just going to let her ask an actual question. All right, let me find an actual question I haven't asked you yet. What are some books or authors or stories that have influenced you as a writer or that impacted you as a teen? Hmm. Um, influence is hard. I will, uh, like the biggest, influence on the field guide at least it uh, was uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower yeah I mean it was like the first book that really sort of like addressed teenage feelings like addressed being a teenager but wasn't afraid to be teenagers are depressed sometimes teenagers are sad sometimes like a lot of books about teenagers always were always like in big swing emotions mm-hmm. they're partying they're angry and they're heartbroken like those were the three speeds and this one was the first one I experienced in the books I'd read, I hadn't read a whole lot, where like, no, teenagers are sometimes just sad and a little depressed and a little out of sorts. So mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the level of interiority. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a kid, the books I read, like, it's weird. When you're a teenager, like, that's when I at least stopped reading a lot because reading became this effortful thing that, like, teachers were assigning and then quizzing you on, and then it kind of just stopped being enjoyable. Mm-hmm maybe because I didn't enjoy the books they were assigning. Um, but I remember really, really going deep into an Agatha Christie phase Fun. and reading murder mysteries. Okay. Like freaking inhaling them. Yeah. Um, at some point, uh, my dad got really mad because I really enjoyed buying an Agatha Christie book and like eat, eating it up in like three hours. Yeah. And then he was like, get a library card. Just go to the library. Why do you have to buy all of them? And I was like, because I like having them on my shelf. It was a whole thing. Um, but yeah, I was and like murder mysteries are books that come with an a reward at the end. Mm-hmm. I'm almost like it's almost like reading a box of cereal because you know there's gonna be a little toy at the end. Yeah. Um, and I really, really enjoyed those. I think the one I I distinctively remember the reading experience of reading uh, and then they were none. Okay. Which is the. Uh, it's the one where they all go to the island and one by one they start dying mm-hmm. and they can't find the host and there's no boat to take them back to the shore. So they're all just like dying one by one. Yeah. Um, I remember reading that one because I started reading it at like 11 p.m. or midnight. Right. And then I didn't stop. I physically could not stop until like 4 or 5 a.m. I remember having a headache and still reading. And that's yeah. because the book was so good. And I, I love that headache. That headache is the best thing. Yeah. So like when... Oh, I love it so much. And that one was like, ooh, yeah. That experience of like reading all night is taking me right back. I'm trying to remember the last time I had a book that did that to me. But like 
to me that's such a like hallmark especially of the teen reading experience because you actually have the time and and the like lowered self-discipline to let yourself do that Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and then you just like you all because you're a teenager and like you're experiencing the world in first person you really think you're the first person to have read this book oh yeah absolutely oh have you have you heard this is she's agatha christie she writes like murder mysteries and, and like my mom was like yeah, I know who Agatha Christie is. <laughs> no, you really don't. This is like Agatha Christie. And you feel so smug because yeah. you write a book you enjoyed. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love God, I think I did that with Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, have you heard of this guy? And my parents, who both did language studies in college, were like, yes, 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 we have. College is like the perfect place because then you just like, there's a building called the English Department yeah. where all those kids amass and try to like impress each other by making those references like in the middle of class. Yeah. Uh, yeah, college is really great on that front. I think in terms of um, YA books, officially YA, because I don't think Agatha Christie qualifies as YA. Right. Um, I read it later because it came out later, but like I love the world of the Hunger Games. Yes. And that's. Uh, for me, it's different than loving The Hunger Games because, honestly, for me, and this might be controversial, but a little Katniss goes a long way. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the character, but I just love the world so much. Like, of all the properties out there that there are, like, millions of TV shows and millions of spin-off franchises, I'm like, no, set more stuff in, the, in this world because it's so amazing. Like, this world that's between, yeah. like, dystopia but also reality TV where yeah. every year kids are kidnapped and they have to put on a performance, they have to interview well. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. Um, I think if I was like one year younger at the time, I would have definitely written like those archive of our own like 60,000 word fan Oh my God, do it. it. It's never too late. It's nev- I don't think it's too late. It's never too late. <laughs> my editor would be wildly pissed. <laughs> like, how's, this, how's this novel, the second novel, how is it then? I'd be like, well not going well but you know what um uh, fox face i gave her a lot of interior (laughs) oh my god please do it um yeah i actually think that may have been the last book that i did the the up all night tear through because that would have been before i had a kid Mm. so i think the hunger games yeah yeah um were they all out at the time or the third one came out i think the year before i had my first kid I think Mockingjay okay. came out in 2012. I'm, I'm always resentful when I really enjoy a book and then I learn that like it's a series and the next one isn't coming out for like three yeah. years. I am filled with such rage. Yeah. Uh, Mockingjay was 2010 actually. So earlier than oh. I thought. But I read it more in, in 2012. I think I read the whole series. Yeah. Sometimes with series, I wait until all the books have come out. That's how you have to live life now. Yeah. Um, there's a TV show that I really enjoy that like the second season is finally coming out like this month. Yeah. And I'm like, I-, I can wait two more months to watch the whole thing at once. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Fleabag on Amazon. Um, okay. I'll check that yeah, out. Yeah. I'm like, I-, I can't do the week by week thing anymore i can't especially for books where you have to wait years it hurts me in a particular way like george R. R. martin has <laughs> taken so much from me yeah i feel that way about um about the outlander series uh, are they done or is it still going she's on? still, still going writing on. books i mean she's been writing books since the 80s and i found them and read them a few years ago and now supposedly there's going to be another one like, I think she's literally working on it but they they take years because she does so much research and is the last one like 
it's it's open ended. So the last one was yeah. kind of a cliffhanger. Yeah. 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 Oh god. Yeah. No. It's it's like no. similar to Game of Thrones. I think that yeah. would hurt me so much. That I, would hurt me so much. It feels personal, honestly. It's like why do you why don't you drop everything in your life and just you know write twenty four hours a day so that I can have this book? Can you answer that question? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I, I used to like follow George R. R. Martin. Right. And whenever he would post about anything, I would be filled with such anger. Like, how dare you enjoy <laughs> televised sports, good sir? <laughs> Do you think you're free? Do you think you're a free person out in the world right now? No. And, and then eventually I just, I just like had to come to the conclusion like, oh, it's never coming out. And weirdly, <laughs> I've been able to make, my, to, to make my peace with that. You have to compartmentalize. I've yeah. just been like, listen, if I'm 45 and like Winds of Winter comes yeah. out, I'm like, that'll be great. That'll be amazing. But it's not coming out. That last book, Dance of Dragons, was the last one. And that's just how I have to live. Yeah, I understand that. So this is, is this an official plea from you there then for authors to have uh, less of a life and more writing? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Keep in mind, I only have one book out, and I don't have the sort of rabid fandom that's asking for like. Uh, when's more. your? When, I'm going to be that rabid fandom. When's your second book coming out, Ben? Uh, what's the year after next? Is it going to be out before Yafest in May? Oh, absolutely <laughs> not. Okay. Well, then you know what? You're not doing enough. <laughs> I'm really not, uh, <laughs> and it's not going to be related to Norris Kaplan. Yeah. That is a question some people have asked, like, hey, are you writing a sequel? Is this one of those YA series? I'm like, no, no one's asked. The, mm -hmm. the next one is like an original story. Cool. Um, but I did the thing where I started it over because um, I did write a version of it, a full novel. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't good. It just really <laughs> wasn't good. Right. Um, and my editors were like trying to find a way to tell me that it wasn't good. Right. And I was trying to find a way to convince myself that it was good. But eventually I just like printed it all out, sat down and read it. I'm like, oh, this isn't good. So I'm restart I restarted the full story, okay. um, which is exhausting, but also like kind of fun to know you're able to do that. Yeah. That you're like, oh, if, if, if I write something that's truly like horrible, even if it's like 300 pages, I still have the sense of being able to be like, oh, this is not a good second novel. So let's just start over. Yeah. Cool. Well, Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sorry, that sounded snarky. I no, told you no, I'm no, a Norris, not. but uh, genuinely, oh, no, I look forward to it. Um, that was a that was a Norse uh, Slytherin sort of like. <laughs> oh my god! I can't believe I wow. didn't bring that up. My favorite, like maybe my favorite book, is when Norris lies about what Hogwarts house he's in to impress his girlfriend's dad. That is Listen. just like the most up to date millennial moment. I love it. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm a teacher now, so yeah. my daytime job is to teach people who are between 18 and 22. Yeah. And I don't think we realize like how J.K. Rowling changed the world with right. those books. Because now there's a generation of people who, for them, it's like, this is astrology. This is how they define their soul. Yeah. They're like, oh, I'm a Huffleclaw, which isn't even a word. <laughs> It's like the portmanteau of two things that aren't words, but they're very serious about it. Yeah. And I'm like, I enjoyed the books. I read all seven books. I think I watched like five of the movies and then I just lost interest. Yeah. But I think we need, we as a society needs, need to calm down about not Harry Potter, but about the dividing of the houses. Right. Like we need to chill. Because even from a writer's point of view, and this might send me, this might create hate mail. Yeah. Uh, feel free to send it to me at go home Ben, all one word on Twitter. Okay. But like, it's not that thought out of a system. 
We have like the courageous ones. We have the evil ones. I know it's ambition, but like really, it's evil. Yeah. It's evil. Yeah. And we have people in the background that like to read and people in the background <laughs> that don't like to read. So that's kind of like sloppy. Absolutely. Whole generation is defining themselves by those things. Yeah. Oh, oh I, I'll tell you, like on this podcast, Hannah, mm-hmm. my co-host, who's who's not here today, she is like a big big Hogwarts fan um, Harry Potter fan and I really really like the books um, and we have not touched Harry Potter every now and then I got, we're like we need to talk about Harry Potter at some point and then we're like we, we just nope like we can't even touch that like the minute you touch Harry Potter everything is about Harry Potter okay I, yeah. I this, this used to be my bit because I've been doing like book festivals and like going to schools yeah so this used to be my bit that I would just be like and you know what screw Hufflepuff and you know <laughs> I think like two thirds of the room will laugh yeah. but like one third gets so genuinely offended <laughs> like you just like cursed out their family sigil Yeah, they'd get so upset yeah. about it and like other writers on the panels with me get upset about it <laughs> people yeah. we have to tone down the crazy yeah. we, it's <laughs> so now it's like fully my thing and they're all like oh you're Slytherin aren't you yeah you're definitely a Slytherin (laughs) according to Pottermore that's great that's a really I like that that's a really good bit that's a really good bit um I think Hannah would be like deeply offended and I'm definitely gonna tell her you said that oh go Um, ahead (laughs) I'm just you know what for the description of this episode I'm just gonna have Ben Philippe says screw Hufflepuff famous Slytherin says screw Hufflepuff (laughs) Because nice. at first I thought, like, oh, we're just having fun. We're just, like, having a back and forth with the offended <laughs> Hufflepuffs. But then afterwards, like, everybody's gone. All the kids are gone. They stay at the table, like, upset at me, <laughs> almost demanding an apology. I'm like, oh, I, I, I genuinely offended you and all your worldview. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But you need to, you need to change everything about who you are because this is intense. Um, yeah, it's wild. And also, okay, this is this is just my personal theory, and it's okay. the last thing I'll say on this okay. topic. Okay. I think everybody who says they're a Hufflepuff actually thinks of themselves as a Gryffindor, but they're trying to sort of be, you know, demure about it. They're trying to sort of be like, oh, I'm a, I, I, I would never say I'm a Gryffindor. I'm, I'm a Hufflepuff. <laughs> I'm in the background. Screw you. You have the smugness of somebody who definitely thinks they're a Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs> but but then if they're that conniving, would that make them actually Slytherins truly? Or does that offend you as a Slytherin? That doesn't offend me as a Slytherin because I'm only a Slytherin <laughs> because like 17 online quizzes did that. <laughs> that's a good position. But no, because I feel like there has to be a level. Uh, the thing with Slytherin is that there's a level of ambition to it. Yeah. Right? But there's no ambition just saying, oh, no, I'm a, I'm a Hufflepuff instead of a Gryffindor. <laughs> it's just being weird. Like, just own it. You want to be a Gryffindor. Like, they're all the protagonists. Hufflepuff, I think there are four of them in the series. They amount, like, 34 pages total. Mm-hmm. Like, be a Gryffindor. Live, live your truth. <laughs> Absolutely. This has definitely placed me on some sort of, like, a list in the YA community. Um, I deeply, not deeply, because he's a very nice, very kind, and charming man. But, like, I was on a panel with uh, Alex London. Mm-hmm. Um, who's an author, and he was just not having it. Okay. He's a full, um, committed Hufflepuff. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. I'm standing by my, my, I'm standing by my truth. 
and it was just a very awkward moment in a panel in a room filled with children. Well, I really look forward to seeing what kind of shit you stir up at Yafest. Oh, I, I'm, uh, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be a disaster. Great. <laughs> Great. I will film every minute of it. Uh, I think we do have to wrap it up, but uh, thanks, sure. thanks so much for being on this show. My pleasure. This was so much fun. Yeah, it was great for bravely telling the truth about Hufflepuffs to the world. Um, Someone has to. Uh, Ben's novel, The Field Guide to the North American Teenager, is out. It's great. Go get it and read it. Um, Ben, is there anything you want to plug before we wrap up? Uh, The second book isn't going to come out for a while. And aside from that, I'm online at Go Home Ben on Twitter. Great. Well, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at yapodcast and individually at tefferbear and at thebalesosaurus. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shoutout to our patrons, Catherine... Resh, Lizzie Tenhove, Chantel Thomas, and Kat McGuire. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Tee Public. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, and by sharing this episode with a friend. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Hey, I'm Aaron Lakoff, host of Changing on the Fly, a brand new podcast on the Upford Network. Changing on the Fly is a podcast that dives deep into the intersections between hockey and social justice. We take on issues of sexism, racism, and homophobia on the ice. You'll hear from athletes, activists, fans, scholars, and even musicians who love hockey but want to keep the jerks out of the game. Think Colin Kaepernick or Serena Williams, but with skates and less teeth. It's your perfect antidote to Don Cherry and Coach's Corner. Hey, Don, what do you think of changing on the fly? Not the left-wing pinkle media bleeding hearts, guys. What are you, nuts? Anyways... You can find Changing on the Fly wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at changingontheflypodcast.wordpress.com. Topics of High Importance, a podcast where we get high and explore food, science, gaming, pop culture, and beyond. Filled with super tangents, forgetful flubs, and that awkward kind of tension that can only be produced by a married couple. Topics of high importance on the Upford Network. Join us, won't you?